Welcome to Speaking in Maine on Maine Public Radio. I'm Cage Kimala Doon. Today we take you to the Midcoast Forum on Foreign Relations in Rockland, Maine, where Dr. Jock Maduk Jock examines the effects of U.S. military in Africa. This program was pre recorded for broadcast at this time. It will be archived on our website, mainepublic.org. Click on radio to hear this program again at your convenience and to access many other past Speaking in Maine programs. The program will also be available as a podcast. Introducing Dr. Maduk Jock today is George Look, Midcoast Forum President. So I want to welcome you to the 440th meeting of the Midcoast Forum on Foreign Relations. It's nice to see everyone here today and also to welcome those listening on the stations of Maine Public Radio. Today's meeting comes to you from the Elks Event Center in Rockland, Maine, and I'm George Look. Each month, the Midcoast Forum, which was founded in 1983, invites an expert on some aspect of foreign affairs to speak and answer questions on an issue critical to the formulation of U.S. foreign policy. Audios of past forum talks, information about upcoming forum programs, and information on how to become a forum member are available on our website at midcoastforum.org. We're very pleased today to have Dr. Jacques Madut Jacques with us today speaking on U.S. military training of African forces, a source of influence or a national security risk. Dr. Jacques is a professor of anthropology at the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs of Syracuse University. His areas of specialization include security, governance, democracy, and development in South Sudan and Sudan. He has also written extensively about gender, reproduction health, reproductive health, humanitarian aid, the ethnography of political violence, gender-based violence, and war, slavery, and the politics of identity in South Sudan and Sudan. Dr. Jock has offered or co-authored a number of books, including Breaking Sudan, A Search for Peace, published by One World Publications in 2017. Before joining the Maxwell School, Dr. Jock was visiting professor of anthropology at the University of Oxford and a fellow of Lineker College of the University of Oxford. He served in the government of South Sudan as undersecretary in the Ministry of Culture and Heritage from 2010 to 2013. He was the founding director of the Sud Institute of South Sudan, which is a public policy research center. Dr. Jacques, welcome to the Midcoast Forum. Thank you, George. And thanks to Rob for inviting me, and thanks to all of you uh, for, for being here today. Uh, it's my experience that... Uh, great friendships begin uh, so benignly in this manner uh, and then be, be maintained for quite some time. So I'm really, really happy to see you and meet you and here to looking forward to further engagement and friendships. Thank you all for uh, facilitating and, um, and inviting me to, to, to come here. So um, what I will do is... Um, um, <coughs> ask three or four forward or leading questions before I go into the 
to answer the question about U.S. Uh, engagement in Africa, whether it is a way for U.S. to influence uh, affairs in Africa or is it a liability? Uh, the first question is, why are there so many U.S. troops in Africa? Um, and you, as I will explain in a little bit, practically every African country, all the 54 of them, have U.S. military presence. Some very small, uh, some mid-sized, some very large. The second question is, do Americans, when intervening in settings in Africa, uh, care about African lives? The third is, to what extent is U.S. military engagement in Africa more likely a self-interest engagement than in the welfare of Africa? The last question is, um, what is the impact of U.S. military influence, or I mean presence in Africa? on the African continent, on African politics and African context. How much influence is there as a result of U.S. military engagement in Africa? And uh, one way to answer all of these questions is to um, spell out some of the uh, reasons that have been suggested and debated. So when you look at this, a map, you will see U.S. military footprints all across the African continent. Um, the U.S. military presence um, is justified uh, in a number of ways. One is that it's a joint effort to operate together with African militaries uh, to address local conflicts either civil wars or interstate conflicts. There are not a lot of interstate conflicts in Africa. Most of the African wars are internal wars. They are so-called civil wars. Um, it always it strikes me odd in the English language that anything could ever be civil about war. But, um, but, but that's, um, that's, those are some of the things that have uh, inspired the U.S. Uh, involvement to try to tackle those wars, which is the reason I was asking the question whether the U.S. involvement in Africa is for the welfare of Africans or is it a self-interest for the United States. And so the engagement, the idea that the U.S. train together with African forces is to strike two things at the same time. One is to create uh, capacity for African militaries so that they will be the ones who deal with the security issues in their countries and in their regions, instead of foreign forces coming into Africa, if the, if the African militaries were given the capacity that they lack by U.S. military, then Africans would be the one to take care of their conflicts rather than a lot of African countries being, quote-unquote, occupied by foreign forces, including U.S. Um, the second part of that engagement is... Um, for U.S. to use that presence to, as a buffer against um, militant groups, especially Islamic 
sometimes terrorist groups. Um, and these include Al-Shabaab in Somalia, which is the strongest outfit for Al-Qaeda globally. Um, you will recall Al-Shabaab have been involved in uh, hijacking of U.S. vessels. They were involved in the bombing of U.S. embassies in Nairobi and in Dar es Salaam in 1998. They have been involved in Al-Qaeda operations in various places across Africa. So that's one group that the U.S. is trying to use its presence in Africa to create a buffer against. The second group is something called ISIS in al-Maghrib, the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria in West Africa, in the Sahel region. It's an oxymoron. There cannot be an ISIS in West Africa because ISIS is, it means it, ISIS is for Iraq and Syria. But they have deployed and trained and recruited largely in the countries of Niger and, um, and Mali and increasingly in um, the collapsed state of Libya. And so the U.S. is very, very concerned about ISIS in al-Maghrib. And so training with African forces in Mali and Niger and Cameroon provides a platform for U.S. to watch this group. The, second, the third group is Boko Haram, which is a Nigerian, northern Nigerian Islamic movement. Boko Haram in the local uh, 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 northern Nigerian Hausa language uh, translates as uh, Western education is haram. And so what they do, what Boko Haram does, is attack schools and abduct girls and marry them off to their fighters as a way to discourage girls and women's education because for them, women's education is, um, is uh, antithetical to uh, an Islamic state, to a state where um, Sharia law, the Islamic law, should reign supreme. So they destabilize the whole region of northeastern part of Nigeria. And U.S. operations in Cameroon, and to, what, to a certain extent in, within Nigeria itself, uh, is to try to uh, fight uh, Boko Haram and prevent it from destabilizing and abducting uh, people. The last one I want to mention of these groups is an operation that was... Uh, high profile against something called the Lord's Resistance Army, uh, which is a, a rebel movement in northern Uganda, and by far the most vile uh, rebel movement on the African continent be because of the things that it has engaged in, including not just abduction of children, boys and girls, and not just marrying them off to the, their commanders, but also in order to to terrorize the region and entice young people into their ranks, they go into northern Ugandan villages, particularly the ethnic group called the Acholi, which is where their leader comes from. The leader of LRA is Joseph Kony. And the way they get young people to join the force 
under duress, obviously, is to go into the villages and hack people to death, including seizing uh, community leaders and cut their hands off. Uh, sometimes chopping girls' breasts off. And as a result, a lot of people who don't want to be subjected to this would quickly join the LRA. And once they are in the LRA ranks, they will be quickly uh, trained and given guns to then be deployed to go back to their villages to be the ones who do the terror. Because once a child has committed an atrocious act against his uncle or her mother, then the relationship between the child and the community is severed forever because they would not be able to go back. They will now become completely loyal to the LRA and have no concern for their families and their communities. That was how LRA uh, destabilized northern Uganda. And the U.S., together with other countries uh, in the region, government of South Sudan, government of Congo, Central African Republic, uh, all joined hands, given training by U.S. Marines uh, in order to hunt for the Lord's Resistance Army commanders, particularly Joseph Coyne, who has been most elusive and very difficult to find in the jungles of Central Africa. So these are some of the reasons why the U.S. Uh, commits to the idea of doing two things, training together with African military so that capacity is left with the African armies, but also being there to watch the movements of some of these uh, groups uh, that uh, uh, destabilize uh, the regions where they come from. The question then is, um, to what extent does U.S. military uh, footprint in Africa actually pay off on, on, a, on, a, on a grand scale in terms of the U.S. being able to actually reap the benefits in terms of its own reputation in Africa, in terms of forging diplomatic relations with African countries, in terms of endearing itself to African countries in terms of trade, uh, in terms of uh, co cooperation on numerous, numerous issues, including climate change and, 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 and fighting desertification, because the Sahara Desert is croaching, is croaching southwards uh, every single day to the point where if nothing happens, um, uh, the entire um, uh, forest belt in Africa will be wiped out by uh, climate change and desertification. So in order for the U.S. to be... To engage on a number of these things, they use the military as a platform, as a foot-in, as a goodwill gesture that they are there on the African continent in order to, uh, to show that commitment, uh, not just to fight terrorism, not just to stabilize the countries, uh, not just to end civil wars, but to also then forge long-term relationships in trade, in military, in, in, in science, scientific cooperation, and uh, sending African uh, students uh, to, to study in, Afri in America so that that knowledge and that camaraderie and sense of togetherness is brought back to the African continent. This is um, the sort of the smart diplomacy that you will hear. This is what you will hear U.S. diplomats speaking of. This is what you will hear some African leaders themselves speaking of. Uh, to justify the U.S. presence on the African continent. Well, 
what is the um, what is the view from below? If if that is the case from above, from both the African leadership, but also you as intervention level, what are the Africans saying about these interventions, about these engagements? So the strategy which the U.S. Uh, has spelled out and has exercised has raised questions from below, from the ordinary Africans, who, um, though U.S. militaries are not always visible on the streets, uh, everybody knows that the U.S. military is training together with African militaries. And this uh, has raised concerns, uh, including uh, people saying there is a specter of imperialism, European imperial ideas being, so maybe this is a kind of neo-imperialism or neo-colonialism uh, that is encroaching slowly, slowly through U.S. military presence. So I went to answer these questions. I went to South Sudan. I've been in Uganda. I've been in Central African Republic. I've been in Northern Congo. I have uh, traveled in West Africa uh, to ask this question. What do ordinary Africans think about the U.S. military presence on their soil? even in countries where there is no war to be fought. And, and, and by the way, some of the U.S. military presence doesn't go beyond a few Marines in the embassy. So it's not like there are Afri uh, uh, American armies uh, uh, flocking into uh, capitals. Uh, the, much of the presence is very discreet, uh, with very limited aims and purposes. So what I've heard in response to my questions about what do Africans think about this uh, widespread the, uh, military cooperation, one particular common response from, response from Africans is that U.S. military presence and cooperation with the governments in some of these countries is a way that America is vouching and extending the arms of local dictatorship. Because if you are intervening in a country where there is no democracy of any kind, where there is no rule of law, where corruption is the rule of the day, where suffering of the people is the most common thing despite the availability of huge resources such that you are in Congo, a country which has so many resources but where six million people have died over the last 20 years from arms being bought from various countries including the neighboring countries in Africa. Where suffering is the reigning reality despite oil being in Angola, for example, despite Nigeria being uh, a wealthy country, um, the sixth largest oil producer in the world, and yet has so much poverty. And so if you are in that country and you are intervening at the United States to support such a government, to what extent can we think, can we say that your intervention there is in the welfare of the African people.
when in fact the, the obvious consequence of your cooperation with that government is that the government becomes ever stronger and cannot be challenged by local activists and local opposition. So in a, in a way, the U.S. has aided autocracy and dictatorship, and perhaps unbeknown to, to it, to her. So that's one uh, thing that I hear a lot. The second thing I hear a lot is that... Um, People always have mixed feelings about a foreign military being in one's country. On the one hand, uh, you feel it's important that we get the knowledge that the U.S. military has and our forces can be trained to become a security force of an independent country with knowledge and with equipment. Uh, but on the other hand, the, the, the military presence of people from another country with, a, with the uniform of another country uh, being seen of loading things from your airport uh, triggers anti-U.S. sentiments because it looks like an invasion. You will recall in Iraq, just as a side note, when Saddam Hussein was overthrown in, 20, in 2003 by U.S. In military, the Iraqis were in jubilation all across the country for a few days and then uh, soon after that, uh, they were not happy with the U.S. military walking the streets of Iraq. And it's because of these sentiments that arise when uh, you feel like you are under occupation or under uh, invasion. Um, so this is what I hear a lot. Uh, the sense of conflicting views uh, about what the... Um, the value of U.S. military cooperation in Africa is. So, um, to what extent can we say that U.S. military engagement in Africa has become a good tool for diplomacy, which has been espoused at the outset as the main reason why the U.S. does this cooperation? Um, and I think if you go with ethnographic information, with the reports from local people, whether through journalists or uh, long-term ethnographic research, what you find is that uh, while the governments may be uh, thankful to the U.S. for giving them the training, the ordinary people uh, feel that uh, the U.S. is either extending the autocratic rule or invading our countries. And especially when it comes to these ideas of fighting terrorism in Somalia, in, in the Sahel region, in northern Nigeria, uh, the more the U.S. is seen engaging against these groups in those countries, the more terrorists you get. For every terrorist, Al-Shabaab terrorist the U.S. kills, 10 are made because of that sentiment that we are under invasion. So, in the end, it is fair to conclude that U.S. engagement in Africa, for whatever reason, um, noble and, uh, and, noble and, and important uh, factors, uh, notwithstanding, 
the reality is that U.S. presence in Africa has become a liability to the U.S. image. So then what should we do? And I will conclude with this question. If that is the case, if more and more Africans are feeling that uh, the, the, the military presence here is a form of invasion and therefore is not really helping the diplomatic image of the United States, um, uh, what, should they, what, should, what, should they, uh, what should the military do? Or what should the U.S. Uh, uh, do in that regard? Um, this is just a map of the region I was describing earlier. Uh, in the hunt for the Lord Resistance Army, you have the Central African Republic, you have Congo, you have South Sudan, and Uganda is there to the, to, to the, to, to the south of South Sudan there. Um, many countries involved in, in, in that. And therefore, the U.S. is being seen, U.S. military being seen in these countries, in the villages, walking through the bushes, looking for LRA, and as a result, uh, people feeling being invaded, even though the people in these countries were completely uh, destabilized and, 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 and devastated by LRA. And here is the U.S. military coming to help them, and it helped them one minute, and the next minute they feel invaded and become anti-U.S. Uh, it's very difficult to, uh, to, to balance that. So um, here is... Uh, um, a Ugandan helicopter or flying over uh, the South Sudanese forces that were looking for LRA. Um, here is um, a U.S. Um, uh, uh, Air Force trainer uh, with the Ugandan army um, uh, to deploy there in, in, in the hunt for LRA. So, um, so then uh, what to do is to really re-evaluate evaluate or re-evaluate um, military the U.S. military role, beyond terrorism, beyond counterterrorism, uh, and go beyond uh, supporting and, and training militaries in Africa, and think about other things that the U.S. military could be doing. Um, and and um, what we have heard from military bases all across Africa is that uh, there is a disconnect between the military leaders, especially the big military organizations like AFRICOM, uh, on the one hand, and then the U.S. politicians, the people who run the country and who make decisions where military should go on the African continent. There is a disconnect from the perspective of Africans between the U.S. military and the, and the American uh, civilian leadership. Um, uh, in the last government, the one before the current one in the United States, things got worse because the person in, in the White House at that time had not only been... Uh, uncommunicative uh, with Africans, he had actually shown uh, quite a lot of disrespect to the Africans. And so what the people are saying is to have, to bring the military leaders together with the politicians and visit Africa together. Um, it didn't happen, obviously, in, in the days of, uh, of uh, President Obama. It's likely to happen under the current administration, but that is what will sell better and be more impactful, which is engagement of both military and civilians together with Africans, uh, rather than the politicians in, in, in Washington sending militaries to do the diplomacy for them uh, through military engagements, because it has backfired uh, a lot of times. And so it is time 
to look at other types of cooperation. Even when you have military, you should also have um, military scientific engagement. In, in Kenya, the U.S., uh, the Walter Reed Medical uh, 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 the, the medical team from Walter Reed, they have a, a, have a scientific base in Western Kenya. And they work together with the Kenya Medical Research Institute to do disease surveillance. And this type of engagement, especially in the days of pandemics and, and epidemics, uh, perhaps the U.S. military could engage more on these issues of disease surveillance uh, in order to use the power of the scientific power of the military uh, to, uh, to build relations with the African communities. Because um, right now there is a lot of talent in Africa, scientific talent, uh, but African governments don't invest in research. Uh, they don't inject enough money into labs. And, and now uh, you find that Africans are simply waiting and begging for the rest of the world to bring COVID uh, vaccines to them, when in fact there is so much talent, there is in fact a lot of equipment, but there is no money being given to these scientists in order to produce these, uh, drugs and, and vaccines. In the, and if the U.S. military invests in that, I think um, uh, it would go a long way, a much longer way than military training. I'll stop here and, and see if people have any uh, questions and comments. Thank you very much. Thank you very, very much. These are uh, uh, problems I don't think most of us think about a lot of the time. And it's uh, really useful to, to hear about them. While um, we're collecting questions, and I'm going to start sorting them out, I always start with a question of my own. Um, and that is about, you know, what the reasons really are for the U.S. military presence in Africa. You've talked about a couple. One is, is uh, a purported reason of stabilizing countries that are undergoing civil strife. A second was counterterrorism. But a third one that you didn't mention is uh, we all know that China has uh, increased its influence and presence in Africa. Is there an element of the U.S. presence, presence there that's related to countering the uh, Chinese presence there? Or is that just immaterial to all of this? No, absolutely. It's actually on my list here in the slides. And I can leave the slides back. People can, can have them. Um, uh, yes, um, uh, the U.S. is definitely uh, concerned and watching uh, China uh, uh, in fact, uh, uh, anecdotally, you will recall that South Sudan is Africa's youngest, the world's youngest country, got independence in 2011, um, largely uh, thanks to U.S. Uh, support for the people of South Sudan uh, and paying for the referendum uh, that where South Sudan is voted uh, for independence in 2011. But soon after the country became independent, uh, the leaders of that country uh, started um, uh, cooperating aggressively, um, so seeking China's support with their infrastructure, with oil production, uh, with other types of investments, uh, eventually leading to break of diplomatic relations between Sudan and the United States. And it, the, the number one uh, cited reason why the U.S. is uh, upset with the leaders in South Sudan is because of China's role uh, in that country. 
uh, China had been uh, a, a powerful force in Sudan before they, the country broke up into two and had been the oldest uh, uh, ally on the African country, continent for China. Um, and so uh, now that China has moved into numerous countries in terms of building infrastructure, giving loans, uh, loans that are extremely uh, uh, opaque in terms of uh, what, what, was used, what it was used for, loans uh, whose uh, pay, repayment plans are not uh, accessible to the ordinary people, contracts that nobody has seen, uh, and then loans become very due, due quite quickly. And when they become due, it turns out that uh, Chinese loans have a very, very, very short repayment plan and very, very high rates of interest uh, to the point that now uh, China is, uh, is, is taking over infrastructure that it had built. Uh, I just read last night that uh, they're threatening to take over uh, Kenyan railway, which they built recently. They took over the Zambian railway and they took over the Zambian copper mines. Um, and they're threatening to take the airport in, um, in Entebbe, in Kampala. Uh, and uh, all of it, before you even talk about the famous um, um, road and bridge uh, program that China is infiltrating uh, not just Africa but a lot of the eastern part of the world. And so yes, the US definitely is present in Africa uh, for, for, for the purpose of trying to, uh, to, to, uh, to do a counterbalance, to be a counterweight to the, to the Chinese role there, except that it is not going to be done militarily. It's going to be done diplomatically and it's going to be done by, in terms of economic development that the US needs to offer more uh, to the African countries so that they don't have to seek this, uh, this debt trap uh, with China. And definitely China has been trapping the African continent in terms of debts. And it will be very difficult to repay those debts. So you've just talked about this a little bit, but if I could get you to expand. Here's a question. Is, in Africa, is there, a, is there parallel skepticism toward the Chinese president, presence, or is Africa more careful about keeping their military presence uh, at a minimum. At first, it was, there was not as much skepticism. Let's say about 10 or 15 years ago, when this began to bloom, there was not as much uh, skepticism. Uh, but then the Chinese have done things that have uh, raised concerns for Africans. The first thing that China does is that in all of these projects, whether it is mining project or construction projects, they bring their labor force from China. A lot of it, I'm told, is prison labor force, uh, which come to Africa and, and get paid peanuts uh, to work on this construction. And therefore, the aspirations that Africa had, that these construction projects would also involve African labor force, not just for pay, but for training, such that knowledge is left behind when the project is done, this is not happening. So it has begun to really uh, anger Africans that Small things like people sweeping the floors of a factory. Uh, you don't need a Chinese for it. Uh, uh, people who are driving uh, construction equipment, uh, you don't need Chinese for it, but they bring them. Uh, there is also the issue of uh, management cultures are different. Uh, the Chinese managers have 
don't have that much capacity to communicate to Africans in ways that are culturally appropriate. And it was the concern also for the U.S. military, the idea that uh, one way to train the U.S. military is to actually uh, give them a bit of cultural background of the people with whom they engage, because cultural appropriateness goes a long way in, 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 in diplomatic engagement. So yes, I think um, um, the issue of uh, skepticism from African perspective regarding foreign intervention, whether U.S. or Chinese, is growing. Uh, and it's growing even more for China because of this element of uh, debt trap, issue of foreign labor force, uh, issues of loans that, uh, that are opaque and people don't know because some of these loan contracts are signed in Beijing by African leaders who go there and be given gifts and kickbacks and sign them there and then come back with money in suitcases. Uh, and there is no transparency about what these loans mean and what is going to be, they're going to be used for. So people are getting very, very agitated with China. Let me switch gears a little bit uh, now. And uh, I know you just got back from the region and we have a number of questions on uh, what the U.S. position is toward the current military takeover in Sudan and what the situation is there. Right. Could you make some comments on that, please? Certainly. So uh, you will also be aware that Sudan was under a vicious Islamic military dictatorship for 30 years, from 1989 to 2019. Um, and in 2019, that dictatorship under uh, somebody called Omar al-Bashir, was, uh, was thrown off through uh, an uprising, a popular civilian uprising, which took over the streets of the major cities uh, and, the, and the elements of the military who were sympathetic to this uprising joined the protest. And when the regime military tried to uh, quell that by force, uh, it became nearly a confrontation between two sides of the military, the pro-protest military and pro-regime military. And when it became very close to being a showdown between these sections, um, the protest was allowed to move on. And the negotiation went on with, between the civil society groups, the, the professional associations, uh, the student union, uh, women's union, women union of journalists, all kinds of people. They all sat together and said, that Sudan needed to be uh, reestablished as a state. Because for 30 years, and even much longer than this, perhaps dating to 1956, when it became independent from Britain, Sudan had, under the Islamic, Islamist leadership, has always forged this identity of being an Arab country, uh, an Arab-Islamic country when in fact the percentage of people who are Arabs is very, very, very small compared to the rest of the ethnic groups all across the country. And so they, they said that we have to sit down and reforge the identity of this country to rebuild and set up a country that uh, is based on citizenship and not on the color of skin or the faith, uh, but simply based on people being citizens of one country. And, uh, and that they succeeded. So all the dictatorship and all his cronies were sent to jail. They're still in jail today. But last October, the elements of the military who were pro-dictatorship staged a coup against this arrangement. 
So now, there is a duel between the forces of protest and the military junta who have taken over. So there is a military putting the United States in a serious dilemma. Because when the dictatorship left, the U.S. could finally relinquish uh, some of the assets of the Sudan that had been frozen because of terrorism. The U.S. could finally cooperate with the government in place against terrorism. The U.S. could simply cooperate in terms of training. And the Sudan could once again join the community of nations, as, uh, not as a prior that it had been for three decades. Uh, but with this military takeover again, uh, by elements who were pro al-Bashir, including the deputy to uh, uh, the current military ruler, is somebody called Daglo. Daglo is the commander of Rapid Support Force, which is the militia that wreaked havoc in Darfur and committed genocide there. Now he's the number two in that country. What is the U.S. going to do about that kind of government? If you say, okay, we'll go back to the days of sanctions, then the ordinary people who are protesting will say you are punishing us. If you let the military reign supreme the way it is today, Sudan will go back to the days when it is a state sponsor of terrorism. So, and, and that is a very delicate uh, situation for the United States. I think most likely they are going to try to reforge relationship with the military junta and try to nudge them away from terrorism, uh, but which will not happen, of course, because Sudan is much, much too important uh, to the Islamic movement uh, to abide by any U.S. Uh, diplomatic nudging. Complicated situation. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, let's switch gears again. Uh, several questions here about the role of, that oil might have played in the U.S. military presence mm. and cooperation with some of the governments. What role did oil play? In, does oil play in all of this? Oil is a big part of the geopolitics. Uh, of the U.S. in Africa. In South Sudan and in Sudan in general, the first um, uh, oil wells were, well, oil in general was discovered by Chevron. And, um, and they were the first to, to mine it, to, to operate it in, 19, in 1978. And they operated it, trained a lot of Sudanese and South Sudanese oil workers brought to the United States and pumped a lot of money into it. But then the civil war started in 1983, and that civil war shut down the oil, Chevron operations, and the oil was now left to be in the ground until, um, until 1989, 1990, when uh, uh, a Canadian uh, oil company, oil and gas company called Talisman, uh, bought the... Um, the operations from not just uh, Chevron, but others who had bought from Chevron, like a Pakistani company called Arakis, uh, and Indian companies, Swedish companies, had been trying to get in, but Talisman became the biggest one, and it was, and it was now the one that, uh, that, my, that produced the oil of Sudan. And as, as they were producing the oil of Sudan, they intensified the war, the civil war. How did that happen? Well, in order to, for the oil trucks to leave the swampy area where the oil fields are, which is within a region in Sudan called the Sut, this is the world's largest freshwater swamp. 
and that's where the oil is. So in order for oil to be produced and taken out, the oil companies build all-weather high roads, highways into the swamps. So the, the oil trucks came to get the oil, but they were followed by military trucks who invaded the region and expelled the entire population from that area. So oil and military are bread and butter. Um, and so what happened is that the oil companies facilitated the genocide against the people living on top of the land where the oil comes from. Uh, it raised a lot of protests all across the North America, and, and eventually Talisman was delisted from New York Stock Exchange because of civil society activists saying, no, we don't want uh, blood money, uh, oil money, basically blood money. Uh, you will also recall the Olympics in Beijing, where they became uh, termed as blood Olympics. Um, Farah, May, 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 a lot of uh, celebrities in the United States protested. Eventually, Talisman got out. All the Western companies got out, only to be replaced by Asian companies. The Chinese um, oil corporation called CNPC, the Malaysian corporation called uh, Petronas, and an Indian company. You see the problem with oil is that if it is mined by, West, well, by Western companies, there is a bit of transparency. Because the oil companies from the West are listed on the stock market, and anything that taints their image could be a loss to the shareholders. So there is usually a, a tendency to be more transparent with your actions. But if you are a Chinese, which is a, 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 a state corporation, it's, it looks like a private one, but it's actually Chinese government-owned, uh, a state corporation of Malaysia, a state corporation of India, in their countries, they don't even care about human rights. So why would they care about producing oil that is killing people in a faraway country? And they are not subject to being influenced by opinions uh, on the stock market, so they are, they are not listed there. So uh, the Chinese and the Indians and the Malaysians have taken over the oil production in South Sudan, uh, simply feeding the dictatorship, giving them the money, and oil is antithetical to democracy because oil proceeds are not known to the public. So the public cannot go and say, where's our money? Because they don't know how much money. If it is taxpayers' money, people can go and say, where's our tax money? Why are you not building schools? Why are you not doing roads with our money? But if it is oil money, Sometimes the deal is made from in a faraway capital and the money is given out there and uh, the, the local public doesn't know uh, anything about it. So it's, oil is the best way to kill a people's tendency for democratic rule. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's killing the world, so you yeah. know. Um, so one is a question that follows up on uh, some comments you made at the end of your uh, presentation. Uh, it, and this one says, do we really want to expand the role of the U.S. military into civilian development activities like disease control hmm. or limit their mission to military issues and return to bilateral assistance, diplomacy, etc.? Good question. I, indeed, I think um, any, any kind of uh, cooperation 
uh, that involves the military is always going to be shrouded in suspicion. Uh, no question about it. Even if it is well-intended and it's science-based and it's likely to help. Um, the, the only reason why people call for such cooperation is that the Walter Reed Army Institute has al already invested heavily in countries such as in Thailand, in Kenya, in, uh, in Ethiopia, and other countries that to, to lose all that knowledge and all that interaction uh, and, uh, and limit uh, that research to civilian and take out the military uh, is probably going to take a long time in order for that good research that is being done to be carried on. But, but, but definitely, I think it is, uh, it is a question worth considering. What is, how much is it, much, uh, is it more worth to have the military continue this role than replace it with the civilian um, uh, universities, for example, or uh, other scientific institutions that are run by civilians? Why can't you have that rather than have it done by the military? I think um, it's, a, it's a good proposition, in, in my view. Uh, I think it's, it's going to take a long time uh, for that to pan out if it, if it ever starts. And here's one that's in a, yet a different direction. Mm. Um, it's just a, a more general question. Of the 54 African countries, about how many are autocratic? How many are corrupt? Are there bright, real bright spots that we should follow and others should emulate? <laughs> I, I think, well, let me just start by saying that all governments have autocratic tendencies. <laughs> uh, so it's a matter of degree. And it's also a matter of the level of enlightenment and education of the population to know what their rights are and, and to know how to demand those rights uh, through organizing themselves as communities of citizens who are informed about how their government is either helping them or cheating them. And, and so, if you look across Africa, you will find some countries have this, uh, have, the, have all kinds of, of ways in which governments cheats people. Um, and so, it depends on the history of political leadership following the demise of colonialism in the 1960s. And so, if you look at countries like Tanzania, uh, which is, was a poor country, but was run by a really kind-hearted philosophical leader called Mualimu Julius Nyerere. Nyerere did one thing that has led to stability of Tanzania to this day. And that is, he said, he designed programs that help people graduate from their tribal citizenship into citizenship in the nation as a whole. Such that in Tanzania, in Tanzania you hardly ever hear of people fighting along tribal lines. Uh, he imbued every citizen with a degree of pride and loyalty to the state and the nation rather than to their regions or their ethnic groups. And so when you have a country like that, um, you have uh, a semblance of uh, a level-headed uh, government which can be challenged by its citizens. 
uh, and you can go with it until a mad person comes to power again, and then it takes it all back. Um, if you, you also have autocracies that are combined, combination of heavy-handed, iron-fisted rule with delivery of services. People in Africa refer to this as benevolent dictators. People like Paul Kagame in Rwanda, who has taken Rwanda from the ravages of, of the genocide in 1994 to being the Switzerland in the, in the middle of Africa now. Uh, and he did this by silencing everyone. No opposition. People who opposed the government were either jailed or lynched. When in the, even in exile, when they ran away, they would be killed in exile. In South Africa, some of them would be arrested in Switzerland and, 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 and Belgium and brought back and tried and jailed. So he did stabilize uh, Rwanda to the point where now every investor who is dreaming about Africa thinks of Rwanda first. Every major research institution and university thinking of opening shop in Africa, they think about Kigali. The Johns Hopkins, the Princetons of this world have all moved in to have hospitals and, 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 and such. So there you go. I mean, I might be able to give up a few of my civil rights any day in order to live in a stable and peaceful Rwanda. Um, Rwanda has one problem, and that is Congo. Congo is being raped by all countries around the world, including Rwanda. Rwanda now has a diamond that is branded as Rwandan. Rwanda does not have diamond mines. That diamond comes from Congo. Because there was a war in Congo where African governments, Zimbabwe, South Africa, Rwanda, and, Kong and, and Uganda intervened to try to stop the war, but instead of stopping the war, they went on mining spree for themselves. And they destroyed Kenya, uh, Congo even more. That is remaining a, 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 a taint on the government of Rwanda. So yes, there are, uh, I can say every single African country is under a dictatorship of one side or another. Uh, the, the bright spots are there. Uh, Botswana, for example, which has, um, when I was undersecretary, uh, we went to Botswana to learn from their experience about how they use their diamonds to build such a vibrant democracy. And the president told us, you have oil, you have gold, produce it, but don't spend the money. Put it away. Just save it somewhere. Just put it on um, an independent fund somewhere. Don't spend it. Then, because oil is not a, a job creator as an industry, because it's such a high-skill industry that only technicians and managers will be employed in it. So what you do with oil money is take the oil money in, and use, you divide it money ways, take one-third to fire up the engines of the rest of the economy, agriculture, animal husbandry, uh, fisheries, tourism, and all the rest of it. You use that money to build the industries. Put a third away for rainy day and use the third to build a state, to, to employ people. In doing so, you will actually employ, in a country like South Sudan, you could employ easily three million people in those sectors. 
If you employ 3 million people out of 12, these 3 million people will pay taxes. Take the tax money and use it to run the state. Keep the oil money uh, stashed away because oil is such a, it's a finite industry and it's such a volatile industry. If you take the money and eat it, as South Sudanese will say, um, and when it runs out, you have nothing. I know you're going to have to leave, but yeah. I wanted to finish with one additional question, and that is the effect of the current political situation in the U.S. on the, U on the United States' influence in Africa. Well, I, without, any, without suggesting being or con con condemnatory of the government of the United States prior to this one, uh, I think that was a disaster. <laughs> uh, <laughs> with regards to U.S. influence or presence or cooperation with Africa. Uh, uh, our then president uh, uh, made so many uh, faux pas that it was it's almost impossible to, to, to find a comeback. And it's taken the current administration it's already taken a year, and the U.S. has not come back to its uh, glory days with regards to Africa. I think it's going to take a, a well-crafted foreign policy team uh, at the State Department and in White House to reforge those relationships, because not only is Africa the next frontier in terms of uh, mineral resources and land use and agriculture and water. Uh, Africa can also be a liability in the sense that if people are going through civil wars, people are, like South Sudan was just demolished by flooding the other day, like worst flooding in decades because of the climate change or weather conditions that are induced by climate change, let me say it that way. Um, and so... Um, you need a team uh, in the United States uh, that obviously is self-serving like any country does, but seeing that what serves the United States the best is to keep away issues of food shortage and, uh, and famines uh, before they come because then the U.S. doesn't have to respond by trying to, to stage a humanitarian mission. Uh, what is more humanitarian is to help people produce their own food rather than intervene when the food is run out. I think, yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Speaking in Maine on Maine Public Radio. Today was a talk from Dr. Jock Maduk Jock. If you miss part of the program or want to hear it again, you can always find it on our website, mainepublic.org. Click on radio to access this program and many other archived Speaking in Maine programs. Music in this hour comes from Our Alarm Clock. Susan Tran is the executive producer of Speaking in Maine. And Speaking in Maine is produced by me, A.G. Kimaladun. Thanks for joining us. This is Maine Public Radio.